0: Hey Seacoast, Ryan here bringing you this week's Weekly Current. Just a couple of things for you to be aware of. Uh, Right now, this Sunday, we have a team of high school graduates who are on a mission trip to Belize. They'll be there all this week. I'll be down there with them. Uh, We'd love for you to pray along with us uh, for that trip, for the students and leaders who are on it, as well as all the people we'll be working with in the country of Belize. Also, if you do not already follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook, we want to invite you to do that right now, um, and you'll be getting updates as well. You can follow along at the team and the service project from this week. The other thing is this as a church, uh, we have a vision that we will give 10,000 community service hours to outside the church walls every year. We have a great opportunity for you to p- add to that. Uh, one of our partners is uh, in inner city LA, and this year we are partnering with them to hand out 2,000 backpacks full of school supplies to kids from. Uh, lower income families. And one of the things that we want to do because our one of our values is joyful generosity, which is giving the backpacks, and radical hospitality. We want people to feel welcome and loved by God. So one of the things we're doing this year with the backpacks is we are writing personalized notes for every single kid and family who will receive one of those backpacks. So. Starting today, you can meet us out in the plaza or you can do this at home, pick up some of the note cards and commit to writing five or ten notes uh, to families and kids who will receive these backpacks, letting them know that God loves them and we wish them a great school year. So that's, uh, we'd love for all of you to participate in that, in our idea or our vision to give 10,000 hours to those outside of our walls. That's all I really have for you this week. So enjoy the worship today, time together as a church. Uh, let's continue to pray that God moves in and through and around us uh, in our city. So have a great week, everyone. Well, good morning, Seacoast.
1: Good morning, Dom. Yeah, great. Good morning, Dom. Yeah, great. My name is Dominic. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here. Usually, I have an instrument in my hand or I'm behind an instrument, um, and that's how I teach. And today, I get the privilege to teach God's word to you. So super excited for that. If you're our guest, which I've met some of you, spoiler alert, we're talking about murder. So welcome. <laughs> Mia, welcome.
0: <laughs> uh, just a lighthearted
1: topic. We are continuing in our series of Path to Life, where we're looking at the 10 Commandments and uh, why God designed them what place they have in our lives as Christians this morning. And so that's what we're going to talk about. But before we do, what Ryan just challenged us to do is to pray for the students that are in Belize right now. So we're going to pray for Ryan, the leaders, and the students in Belize, and trust that God's going to do amazing things through and in them. Amen? So would you pray with me this morning before we start? Lord, what a privilege to be together. It's so fun to see people and be together, and I'm just week by week just enjoying being back together. And face-to-face and we're so excited to see each other to be with you and see what you have for us and in this moment we lift up our our friends and brothers and sisters in Christ in Belize today I pray for Ryan and leaders that you would encourage them and equip them and enable them with supernatural strength and wisdom to lead and guide and discern and love on the students that are there to be a blessing but to be blessed by you and and experience something new and I I pray that you would do something which only you can would bring uh, uniting hearts to you and to each other in there I pray that for the people of Belize that they would see an expression of good news being embodied through this form of Seacoast being over there and more than that I pray that in the lives of these students especially That you'd awaken something in them that faith would move to their own that they would have stories of countless stories to share for generations to come of how you met them in that moment and how you worked and spoke to them and in the most vain task that you were able to make uh, moments for them that were marked and significant in their life so we're thankful that we could send them and bless them and have the resources for them to be able to go and we're grateful for what you're going to do and how that's going to impact this church and this community for days to come. And so now as we look to your word and allow it to study us as we study it, I pray that you'd shape this community of faith to have more of the heartbeat of you to understand what you've been doing since creation and the heart that you have for each of us today. So we love you, it's in your name, everyone said Amen. amen. So murder, you ready? Sorry already to you true podcast, like true crime podcast people, We're not going gory, but my wife was really disappointed. My daughter came up after first service and was like, more true crime, Dad. So pray for her, please. Um, We're we're not going there, um, but we are going to look at why that was such a significant law. And just, I'm guessing by a show of hands in this room, we don't have a lot of people struggling with murder. Just show of hands who's struggling with murder today. Okay, security, one over there and one over there. Great. Now it's a safe place again. So it's probably not a big issue for us. So why in the world would God, Yahweh, the name Yahweh we used a couple of weeks ago, meaning the creator and sustainer of all things, he's the I am that I am. Why would Yahweh in the 10 laws to give to a new nation of Israel say, thou shalt not murder? Well, backstory again, you've heard it before, but just for redundancy's sake, so we all understand the narrative of scripture that we have Israel and they're living in Egypt And for 430 years, they're living there, and they're fulfilling the mandate that God created in Genesis, which was to be fruitful and multiply. And they did a great job at it. And they grew and grew and grew. To the point, though, where eventually Pharaoh's going, I think there might be trouble. They're they're kind of overtaking our resources, and I'm not really happy about the fact that the Hebrews are growing in this place, so we need to do something about it. And so in a boss move and in a power move, move, he says, we're going to enslave that people group. And so they're enslaved for generations, living in Israel and enjoying the accoutrements of the beautiful Nile and the lush river and the shade, and, but yet being enslaved and being reduced to making brick and mortar. And we're seeing the devaluization and dehumanization of a people group being oppressed by another people group. And you know the story that Moses, he comes and let my people go and he's reluctant and he says he has a lisp and he doesn't want to do it or whatever, I can't do it, God, let, send Aaron. They go and throw plagues, ten plagues. They eventually say, get out of here, let my people go. They cross the Red Sea, Pharaoh's mad, he comes at them and the Red Sea dumps on them and they all die. And now you have Israel wandering in a desert and they're complaining Frustrated. If you ever just do a Google image of like the places of where they were wandering, Uh, Ryan said it looked like Arizona. I think it looks like Borrego Springs minus the springs. It's just a bunch of rocks and there's nothing to look at. So they leave lush Israel, which is beautiful and rich in all resources, to just be in a desert. And theologians debate how many people were actually in the Exodus, but it's upwards of two million people are walking and wandering. Can you imagine? It's hard enough with a couple of hundred of us to just do something. And they're following, and Moses, the reluctant leader, is going like, these guys will not stop complaining. And they're hungry, and so God provides something like a Krispy Kreme donut on the ground, the equivalent. It's called manna, and they eat it, and it's sweet like honey, but they don't know what it is, but it's fluffy. And still they go, Yahweh sucks. We need to go back to Egypt. And we're thirsty, we're in the desert, and so Moses strikes a rock and water comes out and they get thirsty. Well, we need meat, and so God brings quail, and they're seeing Yahweh provide, but they don't really know Yahweh because they've been disconnected and they've been indoctrinated in, in the culture of Egypt, and so they're seeing all these various different gods, and so they understand polytheism, but they're not understanding this monotheistic God who's saying, it's just me, and so they're still learning, and okay, donuts and quail and water, but Egypt was better. And Moses is struggling as a leader, and you see his father-in-law comes and says, you need to create a system of structure around this, baby. Like, there's a lot of people, and you're going to try and take care of all these people by yourself. Let's put some systems and structure that you can care and air these grievances and grievances against each other and whose property is whose and whose wife is who, and like, let's put some systems and structure. And three months into the exodus... Moses goes up on top of a mountain, meets with Yahweh, and he gives him tablets of stone with ten laws. And the laws are intended to show that there's a new way of living and to, to distinguish Yahweh from all other gods and distinguish the kingdom of Yahweh from all other kingdoms. And in it, we find that he's a just God, and he's a loving God, but he's a holy God, and you should only worship him. And so for the first five commandments... The commandments about Israel, here's how you and I will interact together. You'll make no images before me. You'll have no other gods before me. And then the last five, he says, this is how you will interact with each other in the kingdom of Yahweh. And so the sixth commandment, the first of the five is, you shall not murder. Now, I don't know if they're all down there choking each other and going, oh, man. But Moses carrying it going, I'm guilty of murder. And I'm walking down saying, guys, you shall not murder. Whoops. Guilty. Uh, You shall not murder. In one sense, Israel, I imagine, is feeling a sense of relief and a wave of grief all at once. It was in Moses' lifetime, you'll remember, that Pharaoh issued a decree that you were to drown all the Hebrew infants... You can keep the baby girls, but baby boys, you got to go to the Nile. And mothers and grandparents and fathers are grieving and seeing that their child's getting taken away from their home. They're being degraded and dehumanized and left to drown in the Nile. And Moses, perhaps, is the lone survivor of that genocide. And so Yahweh's plan and kingdom is do not murder. So perhaps they go, oh... Thank you. And yet at the same time, they've come to adopt the culture. It was nothing for them to see sentenceless beatings and deaths, and murder happening under the kingdom of Egypt and Pharaoh. And so they need clarification if you can believe that. For most of us, we say, thou shalt not murder. Great, do close it up. Let's pray let's invite the band back. But we need clarification on that. So within the next two chapters, Yahweh provides 52 new rules to live by to carry out thou shalt not murder. Including some of my favorite kids, okay? If you slap your mom or dad, we got to kill you. If you curse your mom and dad, we got to kill you. If a man gets into a fight in a bar, he knocks down... If he dies, you gotta kill the guy that hit him. But if he kind of gets back up and just sleeps it off for two days, he's okay. My personal favorite is if your ox gores your neighbor, here's the systems of how you stone the ox to death. We all have that problem, right? Don't you hate it when your ox gores somebody? It's just like the worst, amen? Yeah. So they don't get it. Yahweh, we don't really know him yet and we're trying to understand his kingdom and we're trying to understand what he's doing and so law is come in place to say, this distinguishes me from all other gods. This distinguishes this kingdom from all other kingdoms. And the hope is that you, Israel, live so distinct that it makes the neighboring kingdoms take notice that Yahweh is altogether set apart and different. And that you would come into the loving fold of Yahweh's law. Israel fails miserably even within the first time of bringing the Ten Commandments, they've already made a snake and like they already forgot the law. So he goes back up and he says, God, please don't kill him. Remember your covenant. Okay, back. Guys, we will do what it says. In Exodus 24, you see that there's a shedding of blood and Moses and Yahweh, they create this covenant, which we call the Old Covenant, and say, if you do this, be keepers of Yahweh's law, me, Yahweh, will bless you and I'll fulfill my promises and purposes through you. And Israel fails time and time again. We see that this holy God has a holy standard in that when sin, as the Bible thinks about it, of violation of those laws, it requires shedding of blood. And so Yahweh gives a system of sacrifice. It's our book of Leviticus. It's a messy job, everybody. There's all of a sudden a priesthood and all they're doing all day long is sacrificing animals and slinging dung. And people are going, I'm guilty. Goat, you were great, but you're always mad, and i got to atone for that sin. And so the priests are getting messy, and there's long lines at a temple to just be like, man, we blew it again. We're failing. We're breaking law day in and day out. But we got to be keepers of our covenant so that God is a keeper of his covenant promise to us. For the next 36 chapters in this Bible, which we have comprised our Old Testament, we see a cycle of Israel failing continually. There's law, which eventually becomes 613 law, which is unattainable to keep. And they violate it. They're rebellious Aaron at one point goes, you know how wicked they are, Moses. You know that they're not going to keep it. And they live up to that. They've got taken out of Egypt, but it's a lot harder to take Egypt out of them, apparently. And so, they violate Yahweh's law. Oppression comes under different and various kingdoms. The Babylonians, they take them, they're captive. They're captive under different oppressors. They become oppressors themselves to their own people. You see Nehemiah weeping over his people because they're enslaving each other. A remnant cries out and says, Yahweh, remember your covenant and we'll do what it says. And rescue comes. And then they rinse and repeat that cycle for 36 more books. And during that time as a rebellion and violating sin and there's rescue and a remnant crying out and redemption comes and atonement comes, prophets of God start saying, "Uh, this is what God's saying, you guys suck at this. So um, there's one that's greater that's going to come. He's going to pay the final atonement. Um, he's going to sit on a throne of peace. Uh, he's going to rule and reign and according to Yahweh, as was intended. You call him the Messiah. And so as they're failing, and crying out, and being enslaved, and oppressing and oppressing people, we see the cycle continue, and we see prophets of old say, there's, there's one that's coming. The Old Testament, as we have it comprised, ends, and then there's 400 years of silence between the last book, Malachi, and to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. And we see this character come in, and his name is Jesus. He's the one that's been prophesied about, and he's claiming that I am the one that you've been waiting for. And he begins his teaching ministry, which is about three years long, but the first one that he does is accounted in Matthew. He does this beautiful sermon on a mountain in front of a mass crowd, We have to understand in Israel during this time that uh, there wasn't megachurches. There wasn't big cities even. Like Rome was growing, but really it's 50 maybe to 100 people living in a community, and then they're dispersed without. And so as thousands come to hear this rabbi, that is weird for that time. And he comes, and it's super important to understand that he comes and teaches law because it's still under an old covenant that was created. And the intention of the old covenant for the Messiah to come was, as he says, not to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill the law. Right. You're with me. Just making sure. So I've come to fulfill the law, and actually to the letter of every, like not one piece of the law is going to be violated. There's zero just skating through this. And so, thou shall not murder. Jesus goes, I'm not going to only just fulfill that law. I'm going to expand and give clarity on what that law was actually intended to be about in God's, Yahweh's design for the kingdom. He says this in Matthew 5. Matthew five twenty one. He says, you have heard it said that from people long ago, do not murder. And everyone goes, yeah. We've actually become pretty good at not doing murder now. In fact, we have these religious systems that are happening, and we have the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and though they disagree about uh, what does the afterlife look like and different rules and regulations of how to keep the 613, which now have thousands more amendments to them of how to keep them, and they disagree about that, everybody goes, murder, bad, check. And we've done it great. The weight of the law is crushing, but what I can do in my own strength, I haven't killed anybody. 612. We violated, but we got that one. Good job. Well, you've said, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Ouch. See, about that one, like, I was pretty angry at the Pharisee sitting next to me, and my teacher's mad at your teacher, and Jesus, in a ninja move, goes, let's just, like, precision right here. If you've had anger in your heart, that is contrary to the law and rule and reign of Yahweh. You stand guilty. So just when you thought you had maybe gotten a little bit done, guilty. Jesus continues his teaching ministry, and as he's teaching, people come to him. There's a rich ruler that comes to him and says, well, what law do I have to keep? Well, don't. Uh, commit adultery, don't murder. And the guy goes, Psh, done. I haven't done any of that. And he says, well, give everything you have away. And he goes, wah, wah, wah. And he walks away. And as he's going and teaching, then the, the teachers of the day come and try and trap him up. Well, which is the greatest commandment? Okay, we're all law keepers. We're under this old covenant. We have to not violate Yahweh's rule. Teacher, which one's the best? Well, love God and love neighbor. Love God, the first five. Love neighbor, the last five. Oh, all of them? All of them are the greatest. Great. And as he teaches and continues going on, he continues to expand on the idea of neighbor. Not just brother now, neighbor. Well, what does it look like to love neighbor? And who's my neighbor? And we see Jesus be a unique character reflecting the heart and image of God. He surrounds himself, not with the religious, he he surrounds himself with the least of these, and the unlovely. He he surrounds himself with the people that no one else would dare go to. In one moment, he's inclining at a table with prostitutes and tax collectors. Everybody say, tax collectors. Ooh, come on, you're with me. Ooh, tax collectors. Like, we need tax people in my life today, but Back then, a tax collector was a big deal. The fact that Matthew, who's writing and penning this book through the Holy Spirit's guidance, writing that and hanging out with Jesus, that was no bueno. The tax collector was a hated people group because there were people oppressing their own people. The emperor would give a standard and say, you need a, you're responsible for this quota today, so you need to go get 100 bucks. And the tax collector would go and say, Apple, you owe me a thousand, and they'd pocket 900 and give their quota for the day, and I'll be back next week. And they did that to everybody in their community. An oppressed their, over their people is now being invited into Yahweh's kingdom to walk and be a dispenser of that good news. My favorite one, though, that Jesus is hanging out with, and he's hanging out with the Motley crew. He's hanging out with, like, if you're a Toy Story fan, he's the Island of Misfit Toys is who he's inviting in and saying, that's who fits in God's kingdom. He goes to Samaria. And again, Samaria, ooh, okay. Samaria? No, that's my dad joke, by the way. Thank you. Um, Samaria was a place that Jews strategically avoided. So you have Jerusalem. Here's a map. You have Samaria and you have Judea. And a good Jew would walk around Samaria as to not associate with that people group. Samaritans for the Jewish people were half-breeds. They were part Jew, but they had interwoven with Gentile, no bueno. Jesus goes, that's exactly where we're walking to, and that's the people we're going to go talk to and he sits down at a well in the middle of the day. Well, what's the big deal about that? Well, he meets a woman there. What's the big deal about that? A rabbi would never be caught dead talking to a woman. And Jesus is all of a sudden, there's dignity and value in a woman. Uh-oh. That was not neighbor that we thought you were talking about, Jesus. And she's Samaritan, and she's out at the middle of the day. Again, what's the big deal about the, big day, uh, the middle of the day? She's out there because most people would draw water at the morning hour when it was cool. And she's out there to strategically avoid her community because she's a woman of questionable character. And Jesus, in a moment, sits and talks and listens and says, the kingdom is for you as well. Followers, she's neighbor. Ooh, that's really hard not to have anger in my heart towards her, though. She's three things. She's three strikes in what we thought was right. And in one swoop, Jesus says, nope, she's actually part of the plan of Yahweh. That's what it looks like to love neighbor. So the weight of sin, of the, law, the weight of the law is crushing to the listener and to the follower of Jesus because he's categorically making it impossible to be self-righteous. I thought I was not murdering and doing a good job. He said it's now anger towards brother and neighbor. And now the neighbor is expanding to people that I my whole life thought don't be with and would never be a part of the kingdom. And Jesus is saying that's actually why I'm here. I came to seek and save the lost. Dead by the weight of sin. Dead by the weight of what law is calling for the impossibility of keeping that law just became all the more impossible. Do you see it? So the good news comes in this. Jesus is the awaited Messiah that was being foretold of for generations. He was born of descent that made him an Israelite. Who kept Yahweh's law to a T with perfection and precision and better than any person ever could. Thus keeping Israel's commitment to the covenant thus being the recipients of Yahweh's kingdom blessing. But yet there's sin to atone for and The only way sin's atoned for is through the shedding of blood. And so Jesus, who was without sin, became sin, and those who knew law and not to murder are now chanting for the murder of Jesus. I love the story of that. He's before Pilate, and it's him, the son of God, next to Barabbas, an actual murderer and criminal whose name means son of God and they choose the wrong son of God. Murder him, set the murderer free. Violating law. Right there, but justifying it. And Jesus could have at any point said, okay, enough with that crown, enough with that robe. Let's wrap this up. You're done, you're done, you're done, you're done. I never liked you anyway. You're done, you're done. Here we go. We're starting all over again. And instead he fulfills prophecy in Isaiah 53. He says, like a lamb led to the slaughter. He's quiet and he's he's disregarded by the ones that he made. He's rejected and despised. And so he shows the ultimate expression of Yahweh's love is that he extends his arms and he sheds blood to pay for atonement. And yet at the same time, when he screams, it's finished. What is also finished is not only the rule and reign of sin, but the end of a covenant and the beginning of a new covenant. So moving forward, those who would believe in Jesus would believe in him being the perfect Israelite. As the writer of Hebrews said, the better Moses. He becomes the new high priest, no longer a system of sacrifice, but the once and for all sacrifice. Law being obeyed is disregarded now. He's crucified law and started something new, which is love, neighbor, and self, but not based on your or my merit. It's based on the finished work of Jesus, now trusting in that finished work. And then what Paul writes in Galatians, he says, the spirit of God living in you is now how you're going to express the kingdom, not work-based. So you get to break up with performance. You get to break up with, I'm not good enough, and I'm still struggling here, and I'm still struggling here, and God, just please forgive me. I hope you'll give me a second chance. That's law. I violated these 600, and I just hope that you'll love me and accept me someday, and maybe you, by the skin of my teeth, by the blood of Jesus, I'll be saved. No, that's law. Under a new covenant, the good news of the new covenant is for those who are in Christ and trust the gift that is his and accept the perfect life that he lived and the blameless life that he lived and the sacrifice that he made, that I trust in that and now become a recipient and a co-heir with Christ, not by what I did but by his work. There's no self in that process. And yet I get to bring my full self to the process to be an image bearer of him now. Make sense? So church, Tim shared two weeks ago about his concern of a a passionless church. I want to be honest and say my biggest concern is that a new covenant, New Testament church hasn't broken up with law yet. My concern for you is that you're still living under the burden of law, even professing Christ. And haven't come to realization that you've been made free and you are new. You're not being made new, you are new. That you're loved and accepted before you did anything this morning, not by your merit or works or strength or intellect or capacity, but because Yahweh's design and expression of his love was fully demonstrated by the finished work of Jesus. And that by trusting in that, we can recognize that we're free. Performance goes away, and we can just rest in Him. Galatians five is such an interesting place, and that's where I want to land with this this morning. Is that concern was shared by Paul that I just shared with you. There was Judaizers in the in the Galatian church, and what they were doing was what that meant was there was Jewish believers and now Gentile believers, because Jesus and His commission said, "Now go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth." proclaiming Yahweh's design and plan. Which means, not a political statement in 2021, I'm not trying to make one, but a theological statement is that all lives matter to God. And the kingdom is for all people. And as they're doing that, the Jewish followers are still married to Torah law. And they're indoctrinating a Gentile follower with Jesus plus law. And the Gentile followers going, wait, I thought it was just Jesus plus nothing. I thought that was the invitation. And they said, no, 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 no. You're not circumcised yet. Got to get circumcised. Big deal. Just line up. We got a buddy. He's giving half off sales. Like, come on, here we go. You got to keep some of the Torah in there because the Torah is good. And, And they're just, they're struggling going like, no, I seriously thought it was the finished work of Jesus. I, th- I thought that was it. I thought that I trusted in that, and then that was it because he was enough and sufficient for that. And so Paul says this in Galatians. We, we talked about the law being a, like the bumpers of bowling. You know, like as you're learning to bowl, the-, the bumpers give you some space as you're learning the skill. But Paul says break up with the law, break up with Moses. He says, verse uh, chapter 3, verse 23, he says, Before this faith came, when you were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed so that the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. One of the craziest verses right here, 25. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of law. The law is done. Break up with Moses. A better Moses has come. As a Hebrews writer in chapter 8 would say that the old has become obsolete for the new. I was trying to think of an analogy, and it's like, if somebody gave you an iPhone 1 right now, and you're like, what do I do with this? Like, it, it can't even have the new operating system on it. Like, it can't, I can't even make a call on this thing. What does it do? That's how obsolete the law was, to the nth degree, because Jesus was enough. And he ends with this in chapter 5. I just would love to read it to you as we end. We'll invite the band up here in a minute and take communion together to celebrate the freedom that we have in Christ for those in Christ this morning. Paul writes this. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Just the goodness of Yahweh is that you are free. That's it. For freedom's sake that you've been set free. So stand firm then and do not take up a burden again by the yoke of slavery. Mark my words, he's emphatic about it. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, if you just insert law into that, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare that every man who lets himself be circumcised, that is obligated to obeying the whole law, you are trying to be justified by the law, but by doing so, you've been alienated from Christ. The law was never having the power to forgive, the law was never having the power to obey. It was just setting guardrails now, but because Jesus came in, we get to break up with Moses. Moses is a story. He is not the mediator for us anymore. Law points us to Christ, and now in Christ we are set free and no longer need law. So, by faith, verse 5, we eagerly await the spirit of righteousness, which is our hope. For in Christ, neither circumcision or uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts in faith is expressing itself through love. He goes on to say how you do that. How do you express love? Again, thou shall not murder. shall not have anger in your heart towards brother. Under love, love your neighbor. Here's how you do it, church. For those in Christ this morning, so I say, verse 16, live by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the sin nature, for the sin nature does contrary to what is the Spirit. I think the concern is that if we break up with law, we're all going to go crazy with grace. If we break up with law, then we are going to go crazy with our freedom and expressing our freedom that we have in Christ. And Paul's saying, it's impossible. If the Spirit is in you, the Spirit will not lead you to things that are contrary. They're in conflict with each other, he says. So, you do not do what you want to do, but if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sin nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Does that sound like thou shall not murder and not have anger in your heart? I think he named it and went for it. Thank you, Paul. I warn you, as I did before, those that live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, anytime you see but in the Bible, circle that baby because it's contrasting the point right ahead of that. In contrast to that, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So those who belong to Christ have been crucified in the sinful nature and its passions and desires. So since we live by the Spirit, let us keep with the Spirit. Church, for you that are in Christ today, I implore you to break up with law today. The law was meant to crush, and the law was meant to show the impossibility, and the law was meant to say, I need rescue. And that rescue has come in the form and faction of Jesus. So you can break up with law, embrace freedom, and allow the spirit, which Paul says in Ephesians, has been sealed like a signet ring of a king, saying, this one's for me are sealed with the spirit of God and by being led by the spirit you now get to live in the law of love one another in each other reminding each other of the kingdom for those in this room that don't know Jesus and haven't placed faith in Jesus the law is the thing that crushes you today my hope is that it points you to say I can't do it faith in Jesus is the way and it's that simple I'm going to break up with that I'm going to try a new way. Amen. We're going to take communion together and sing one final song together. If you have communion elements, did anybody not get a communion element that needs some? If somebody can grab some for them, please, that'd be great. Communion, as we talked about, a covenant, that communion, Jesus is sitting at a table with his followers. They're at Passover celebrating a meal and he comes to them and says, this is going to be the symbol of the new covenant. And every time you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of that I'm the great high priest. I'm the better way. I'm the covenant keeper and creator of a new covenant. And through my bloodshed, the once and for all and final sacrifice has been made. So we're going to celebrate the bread and the cup. those who aren't in Christ this morning, I encourage you just to watch. This is for those professing faith and a symbol of us acknowledging that. You might be saying, this is manna, what is it? I'm right there with you. (laughs) It's not a piece of bread, but it's uh, the way we remember it today. So as you hold the bread, the bread represents the body that was given for you as a sacrifice to atone for a life that we could never live so Jesus lived that died a death that was deserved for us so that we might have life and celebrate that so brothers and sisters in Christ let's take the bread together and the cup symbolizes the blood that was shed to again pay for our sin and atone for sin, but also to mark the beginning of a new covenant and new freedom for us in Christ. We celebrate Jesus and his finished work together by taking the cup. Let me pray for us and we'll sing one more song together. God, thank you for the narrative of your story that since the beginning of creation, it pointed to a rescue Pointed to your heart that said that um, that you loved and that you would demonstrate love and that the plan was to show the uniqueness of the love that you demonstrated and then invite us as image bearers to demonstrate and proclaim we love you i pray that what we learned today and studied today would inform our practice would inform how we love each other how we see ourselves and you and that transformation true transformation would take place Help us to break up with Moses and embrace Jesus.